Well, good morning. I um. I think it's appropriate. I was I was uh, considering what. You know what to do in light of um, just what this day represents, um, and then the events that happened on it, and um, and honestly, I I just wanted to open up in prayer for uh, you know because that that event that happened, um, it's still even though many of us may not still feel the effects necessarily from it, there's still a lot of um, a lot of families who are still destroyed by it, so just want to open up in prayer for for them. So Father, I just um Lord, I thank you for who you are, Father. And you are the same uh yesterday, today and forever. And um and Lord, I I know that there can be a lot of still anger and and hurt that comes up from um from the events that that just marred this day, Lord, in in our minds and in history and and uh and so, Father, we just ask for your, your peace and your comfort to come on the families that are still uh, feeling the effects, Lord, whether it be through loved ones they lost or, um, uh, Lord, the, the soldiers and, and family members who are uh, still trying to protect this country, Lord, and putting their lives on the line. We just uh, pray for their protection and, and for, um, Lord, for, for their comfort. And, Father... Um, Lord, you seek all of those who are lost, Lord, the ones who, uh, the ones who put on the, um, the events, Lord, just the tragedy, Lord, you, you even seek them out. So, so Lord, let us keep in mind that, that you seek each and every one of us, Lord, to come into relationship with you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Psalm 132, verses 3 through 5 says, Surely I will not enter my house, nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes, or slumber to my eyelids, until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So Jeff is out of town, um, so this this sermon will not be on Revelation. I'll just leave that to him. He's doing a great job. I'll... Uh, let him, you know, continue with that. So this is going to be a, a little sidetrack, um, but I'm not going to lie. This week's message has just given me a lot of trouble, and uh, more so than any other message that I've given. I've gone back and forth, writing and deleting, because this topic is so prone to confusion and can cause so much hurt if not understood or communicated properly. I want to be clear and direct without seeming callous, insensitive, or ignorant of the situations that many of you face. But God has been faithful in directing me, as he always is. And so please just give me grace, and uh, if there was ever a message to ask questions on afterwards, I think this would be the one. So um, today we will be talking about conviction. And when I felt God call me... uh, to speak about this, I found that I was becoming very judgmental and harsh when thinking about what I uh, should or wanted to say. I was writing as if 
I was the one to do the convicting. And, uh, and God soon reminded me that that's not my job to convict. Um, it is my job to point all of you to Christ and, and to direct you all to hopefully go and, and seek him in his direction in this area. Um, because I'm sure that he would deal with you with a whole lot more uh, grace than I would. Because <laughs> I'm human. Um, but I don't want you all to hear this and walk away thinking that I have either A, told you to create a list of rules that you need to go and follow in order to get into heaven, or B, to make any of you feel any kind of shame or, or condemnation. Because I think that's where a lot of the hurt and a lot of the, uh, the confusion comes when talking about this uh, topic. And rules apply the same to everyone, you know, no matter who you are, but conviction may be different depending on who it is that's being convicted. And so conviction is a major role of God. It is how he interacts with us on an individual level and, as, and the world as a whole. In John chapter 16, Jesus speaks of the arrival of the Holy Spirit and what he will do when he comes. Oh, I should have bolded that, sorry. But starting at verse 7, it says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So Jesus says that one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit when he comes is to convict the world of sin. And that the Holy Spirit won't come until after he goes back to be with the Father, referring to Jesus' resurrection. Now, if you were the disciples, you would be pretty bummed to hear that Jesus to hear Jesus talk about how he's gonna have to leave and go away. I mean, he was they spent their whole lives, or well, <laughs> their whole lives when they met him after that point, uh, following him. But he says that it would be for our benefit that he goes away. And how would this benefit us? Well, Jesus convicted many people of their sin while he was on earth. But he was only one person. And he was limited to a specific geographical area. One man cannot reach the entire world just by traveling and every person in it. So he said that he would go back to heaven and pour out his spirit over all people. And that same spirit would come and live inside of everyone who believes that Jesus is the Savior and the Son of God and sufficient payment for our sins. This spirit is the very spirit of Jesus himself. He would reveal to the world, not just one person or many people, but the whole world, its need of a Savior. Now, unfortunately, many reject this idea of needing a Savior and believe that them being a good person is enough. They won't listen to this conviction because they offer a pretty good deal to God saying, you know, I haven't really killed anybody. I'm, you know, nice to most people. I, uh, and there are certainly much worse people in the world than me. Now, I'd like to consider myself a pretty fast runner. But if you put me in a race next to this man, Usain Bolt, it would be, uh, I would come up utterly short. And it would be a pretty 
pitiful comparison. Now, in the same way, we take this mentality of, I am pretty good into our spiritual lives. But pretty good when compared to perfection is still not enough. And so whether we are talking about my speed or your goodness, both are relative to who you are being compared to. And a perfect God requires perfect righteousness. Romans 3.10 says there is no one righteous, not even one. And so conviction's first and primary role is to reveal this truth that we are not righteous by our own works, but to lead us to repentance, to call us to redirect our faith from ourselves into the person of Jesus. So then how does conviction play out in the lives of a believer? Well, if you already believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then does God still need to convict you? And if so, then why and how? Well, there are many scriptures, both in the Old and the New Testament, that show how God deals with us as our Heavenly Father in the same way that he intended an earthly father to deal with or discipline his own children. So Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 through 11, say that, For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he, our Heavenly Father, disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So this passage is saying that God does still indeed discipline us, and that word disciplines means to train or correct. And that is what conviction is supposed to do. Correct us in our way of thinking, and in our behavior. But this discipline comes so that we will repent and bear fruit, the fruits of the Spirit of God, the fruit of love and of joy, of peace, of kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So why does conviction and repentance constantly fall through the cracks? You know, why do we hear about a Christian's lack of peace in their lives and their struggle with sin just constantly? And I think uh, because the truth is that, you know, believers are no longer sinners but saints, okay? And God's conviction leads us towards obedience to him. But instead of believing that God has given us the power and ability to overcome sin in our lives, we refer to them as thorns in our flesh, or we make some other excuse for, you know, for, for the problems and the sins in our lives instead of listening to and understanding conviction and its purpose in our lives. There are two truths about God that I think can skew a Christian's view of his discipline and conviction. And many of us favor, or tend to favor maybe, you know, and I'm generalizing here, so like I said, give me grace in this, but... I think many of us tend to favor one extreme or the other. And so I have a diagram here to, um, to display what these extremes are. So on one end, we have that God is judge. All right? We have the truth that God is the righteous judge over all creation. And his judgment of sin will result in many spending eternity separated from him. Not because it's his will, but because it's our will to not spend our life with him. And on the other end, we have God's immeasurable and abundant grace. 
and it's offered to all creation. And where the needle falls in between these two truths, maybe. Whoop. Where the needle falls in between these two truths kind of represents our level of conviction, okay? And it, can, and it can affect how we view God, all right? And it affects how we view not only the area, like the idea of discipline and conviction, but of God himself and what makes up his nature. So both statements are true about God. He is the righteous judge over all creation, and his grace is so abundant and immeasurable that we still don't even really comprehend it. I mean, every day, you, you know, God shows us his, his grace. But if we aren't careful, we can slip into focusing on one and ignoring the other. And if you focus solely on one of these truths without having the other, then no growth will occur. So for instance... If we focus on God only as the righteous judge over all creation, if someone only knows God in this way, but not as gracious father, then they may fall into sin and their conviction comes in the form of so much shame and a sense of unworthiness that they feel helpless to get out because shame does not empower. It wants to push you to seclusion. And I think that there are that they are typically the type of people who say things like, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, and everything I do are just filthy rags in the sight of God, right? And instead of saying, I am a son of the living God, who is not given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And so now on the other end of the spectrum is God's immeasurable grace, and someone who only focuses on grace runs the risk of abusing that grace to the point of not feeling any nudges of conviction at all. You know, because they are so caught up in the idea of God as a forgiving father that they reject any conviction of God's discipline. You know, they ignore the fact that God does truly hate sin. They view God as only their friend, but not as their king or judge. And they may be openly involved in sin, but show no effort to try to get it out of their lives. These people remain stagnant in their growth because they ignore the need to repent after their salvation. So misunderstanding God's grace can hinder people who think this way from taking their ma the maintenance of their relationship with God seriously. They just want the faith in Jesus part, but not the relationship that comes after. So where does your needle fall? All right, Are you one who only focuses on grace, who eats up all the messages about how God you know, God's love for us, and, but don't really realize that that same grace should lead you to repentance and transformation in your life? Or are you on the other end? Where you believe that God loves everyone else? But he just puts up with you. You think that he's just anxiously awaiting for you to die so he can go over the long list of sins. That you have committed over your lifetime. Oh, Lord. 
whether you view God more as a wrathful judge focusing on his hatred for sin than his love for mankind or vice versa, you are probably spinning your wheels in your relationship with him or just avoiding engaging with him altogether. And this results in no personal growth for yourself and no advancement in the kingdom of God. And that's how Satan works. You know, if he can't win you into hell, then he wants you to become useless for the kingdom of God. And that's really what this boils down to. It's just an unhealthy understanding of God's discipline will keep you tangled up in sin. Whether we realize that it's sin or not. It is a tool of the enemy to get you to question who God is and what he says. He wants to break down the relationship that we have with God so that, <clears throat> excuse me, so that he wants to break down the relationship that we have with God so that you become vulnerable to him. God is our strong what? Tower, right? Where the righteous run to find refuge and be safe. Proverbs 18.10. And safe from who? Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's James 4, 7 through 8a. So you see, Satan is not afraid of you. He is afraid of the God that you follow. And we can't entertain this foolish idea that we can just resist the devil and expect him to flee if we haven't sought refuge in our strong tower first. Too many Christians have rejected this idea of following Christ on a daily basis. I mean, like, really following him through devotion, prayer, and study. And as a result, they try to do more for God without taking the time to get to know the God that they claim to serve. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, Luke recounts a story of Jesus going into a village and teaching in a home owned by a woman named Martha. So it's Luke chapter 10, 38 through 42. While they were traveling, he entered a, vill a village. Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. And she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So... So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you worry, you are worried and upset about so many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. So in the beginning, both Mary and Martha were sitting at Jesus' feet. They were both engaged with Jesus, speaking to him, listening to him, and learning from him. But then Martha started to get distracted. This is the Bible's first signs of ADHD. No. <laughs> Not alone. <laughs> so Martha gets distracted, and she starts to do her chores. All right, and the time 
hadn't come for her to do the chores yet. Jesus still had more to say, more to teach, more time to spend with her, but she started working anyways. She gets ticked because she's left to do all of her works while Mary is sitting down relating with Jesus. And she is so confident that she is in the right. She doesn't even question it. She's just like, Jesus, just tell her to come and help me. She doesn't even you know, stop to think about, well, maybe I shouldn't be working right now. But look at how Jesus responds to her. He says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary is sharpening her mind, and the wisdom that she gets from Jesus will help her to be not only more of a fulfilled person, but more effective in the kingdom of God as well. Spending time with Jesus is the only thing that is necessary. Your purpose in life, the reason that God created you, is so that you would know him intimately and glorify him through that relationship. So that you would know the God who created you and bring him glory. That's it. It's not about having a good job. It's not about having a wife and a family. It's not about getting to retirement. It's not about any of that. We are built to house God. And no other creation was built with that capacity. That intimacy that we have with God is what will help you to understand who God is as loving father and as judge king, or just king. That intimacy will empower you to free yourself from sin. It doesn't make sense when people talk about how important it is that they get sin out of their lives without mentioning the importance of their daily walk with God. Instead of telling people how to get sin out of their lives, we should be teaching people how to get spiritual disciplines into their lives. Just telling someone to get sin out of their lives is like telling a sick person that they need to just get better without offering them any medicine whatsoever. That intimacy with God will not only empower you to get sin out of your life, but it will also mold you into the world changer that you were made to be. The early church turned the world upside down with their actions. The disciples, you know, that's what they, that's what they said in the, in the courtrooms. They were like, these people had turned the world upside down. And it's because they had the closest relationship with the Savior of anyone who has ever lived. And they were empowered through that relationship. You see, all believers are children of God, but his disciples are the ones who changed the world. Their works did not bring out a deeper relationship with God, but it was that intimacy with him that compelled them to do the works. God wants us to first become his disciples and then focus on the works afterwards. Mary was learning discipline, but Martha was not. And disciples learn from discipline. They listen to their teacher's words. So do you see conviction and repentance in your life in the way that God wants us to? We should be a people who crave that conviction. Not because God wants to condemn or shame us, but because a father disciplines his children whom he loves. His conviction and our repentance lead to freedom. And we can't forget this. Now I want to pause and clarify something. 
So take a time out. I have been talking a lot about both grace and works and bearing fruit and, and stressing the importance of both of them, you know, or all of them. But I want to make it clear that when we talk about salvation, it comes through faith alone. Amen. You know, grace is the only thing that you need to focus on if you don't know Christ. Works do not play any part in your salvation because the work has already been done. You just need to accept it through faith. But it's after that salvation experience that works start to you know, emerge in, in, their, <laughs> in their need and show their importance. But the problem comes that when non-believers, they think that, you know, many of them will think, okay, well, what do I need to do in order to get into heaven? And believers thinking that obedience and good works are no longer important now that they have already been accepted into heaven. You know, non-believers should be focusing on grace for their salvation, and Christians should be focusing on maintaining their, their relationship with God through his discipleship. And this unfortunate confusion is fed by both fire and brimstone messages and the health and prosperity gospel. You know, it's all about you and what you need to do in both of those. And a well-maintained relationship with God will protect you from falling for either one of those extremes. Jesus says, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. I'll just read it from here. I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean or pruned because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they will be burned. So Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Jesus gives us the image of a vine that has branches attached to it, and these branches, or us, produce fruit. And what happens to the branch that isn't connected to the vine? Scriptures say that it's taken away. And notice that it doesn't say that it's cut away. You know, God does not cut branches from himself, okay? It says that they're taken away. And the way it's worded, it sounds like the branches have already fallen off and are just lying on the ground. He just goes through and he gathers them and he's cleaning his vineyard. So how do we fall to the ground? Well, when we don't abide in him through maintaining our relationship with him. A branch is designed to be connected to a vine just as we were designed to relate with our creator. 
And apart from the vine, we dry up, we become brittle, and eventually break off and fall to the ground all on our own doing. Not having obtained the proper amount of nutrition to bear any fruit. So we strive to produce fruit, but keep ourselves cut off from the vine, forgetting that Jesus told us that apart from him, we can do nothing. As a Christian, I am to pull those who don't believe towards salvation. I am to push those who do believe into discipline with God, into nurturing that relationship. But either way, I am pointing people towards Christ. And in either situation, I am to be intentionally strengthening or attaching people to that vine. Because the cost of not abiding in Christ is far greater than the sacrifices that come when we do. Yet sure, there are sacrifices, there is persecution, and there is suffering. And that's universal, right? whether you know Christ or not. But you will completely forfeit the fruits of the Spirit that are produced if you don't. All right, you, you sever yourself from the God who naturally, who naturally produces love and peace, patience and goodness and self-control, all out of his own nature and all the fruits that I listed earlier. And we can't only talk about the cost of being a disciple of Jesus and not make anything of the cost of non-discipleship. So Dallas Willard puts it like this. He says, non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. And in short, it costs exactly that abundance of life that Jesus said that he came to bring in John 10.10. And he's referring to the scripture that says, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. So abundant life is found in him. And having this relationship does not require a seminary degree. It doesn't require a certain level of IQ or GPA. It, no special clothes or a certain amount of money. It just requires that you take the time to get to know him. I don't get to know my wife better by doing things for her. Okay, me making the bed, taking out the trash, doing the dishes, feeding the dog, doing all this stuff, which I do joyfully. <laughs> but me doing all of those things are expressions of my love for her for sure. But that's it. Okay, I don't get to know Michelle better by doing those things. Spending time with her, caring for her, and speaking to her is what grows us closer together. Those are the most important things to her. And that is one way that marriage is to mir mirror our relationship with God. You know, are you spending time with him? Are you caring for him? Are you speaking to him? More so than the average of, what, two or three minutes a day, I think I read. Surely I will not enter my house, nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes, or slumber to my eyelids, until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. 
King David wrote this psalm explaining how he wouldn't rest until he found a place for the Ark of the Covenant. All right, and that was in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant represented, you know, God's presence and it and wherever it went, you know, God's presence was there. And he said that he wouldn't rest until he found a fixed place for God to reside in and amongst his people. First make a place for God, then make a place for everything else. Get spiritual disciplines into your life. Do what you need to to start or restart this relationship with your creator. Don't ask why you don't have peace in your life if you don't have this. Don't ask why you're struggling in sin if you don't have the spiritual disciplines in your life. And don't complain that you are sick if you aren't taking the medicine. This is worth sacrificing everything for, okay? If your job isn't allowing you to maintain this relationship because you're too busy, then get a new job. All right, I'm serious, because it's, I know that it's easier said than done, but, you know, no, you were, you were created for this purpose. Everything else should revolve around making the time for this. This should be a fixed expense in the Christian's life, and all other activities and all other everything are variable, variable. I have a friend right now who's going through this. He's having to leave his current place of employment for the sake of his personal relationship with God. He is sacrificing a job and a pretty good bit of his standard of living because he is miserable. And he knows that you know, he's sacrificing a job for peace and joy and love and everything else that comes through regular communion with him. He has sought so many things and found them all to be futile. The enemy wants to distract us and draw us away from God so he can rob us of the joys of knowing Christ as our Lord. And we should embrace the words Paul wrote to the church in Philippi while he was sitting in a Roman prison. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them all worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. So if the worship team could come back up. And if those who are um, released to pray... You know, anyone who feels led to, if y'all could line up on the sides over here and over here. So in preparing for this message, I, you know, I heard God say that there was going to be some people here who felt a lot of shame for what they have both done and haven't done with their lives. And that shame cripples, and it doesn't empower. All right, It pushes you to seclusion, but true conviction pushes us towards Jesus. So if you want prayer, then you know, please come up and get prayer from these people who are lined up here. You know, if you have 
never even started that relationship with God and you want to experience this joy and this fulfillment because, you know, trust me, getting it naturally through communion with him is a whole lot easier and more effective than trying to bring it up yourself. You know, then, then come and get prayer for that as well. But Donna Conway came up and she, um, sorry, Cindy, can I have that? Sorry, I didn't take this. I'll give it back, I promise. But Donna came up to me and she said that she felt that um, she had a word from God and I thought it was very appropriate of showing just how this communion with God, just engaging in Him and having these disciplines in your life, which you know she does, it, it bears fruit. And so I asked her to share it here. Can y'all hear me okay? I'm not as eloquent or as practiced or as used to doing this. So I'm going to read it um, so that I won't misstate what I was hearing yesterday. So yesterday for me was a really difficult emotional day for some reason. I was feeling like overwhelmed, distraught, weary, and defeated, which I don't usually feel that way. But yesterday was one of those days. So, you know, I spent some quiet time and some prayer time with God and, um, at first, I was kind of like at a loss for words, didn't know what to say. Wasn't a loss for tears, but was a loss for words. And then I started hearing um, about limitations, um, the word limitations. Um, and I knew this was, was for me, and I um, also felt like he was telling me that others might want to hear this, so that's why I asked Mark about it. Um, so that's why I'm sharing it today. Um, so please forgive me if I stumble or are nervous, because I don't usually get up here and do this kind of thing. But he said he is without limitations. In him, all things are possible, but what we choose can impose limitations for us. He said to honestly open your heart and confess in truth what you are feeling, not for him, but for me, for us. He said, I have always known you and know what you are feeling and going through. It is revealed to me because of who I am. Now, honestly reveal your feelings to yourself <clears throat> so there are no limitations to the work I can do through you and for you. Be encouraged and rejoice. I am with you and for you and here to help you through. And then, you know, after I was hearing that, I did my devotional I usually do, and I read some scriptures and watched some um, Hillsong messages and things like that. And the amazing thing was that all of those spoke in some way to the same topic. Um, so, you know, it was wonderful confirmation and showing how good he is, you know. So, thank you. Appreciate it. I got you. I want a short leash. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you know, after Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit coming, he says that he has many more things that he wants to say to us, but he can't say them right now. And, you know, the Holy Spirit would come and, and reveal all truth. And he would speak to us about what he hears the Father saying. And I think that it's awesome that, you know, she was going through that. But what did she say she did? She talked with God. She spent time with him. She did her devotions. So the worship team is going to play a couple more songs. And during that time... I want to just invite the Holy Spirit to come and to speak <laughs> and to speak to us during this time. You know, so here at Harmony, we we want to give God room to do what 
he wants during this time. All right, and if you want to worship or just sit and reflect, then do that. If you want prayer, then go receive it. Or if you need to leave, you know, we understand. It's, you know, everybody has their schedule. So if you need to leave, then go in peace. But let's pray. Heavenly Father and Righteous King, we just give glory to your name right now. And Lord, we ask that you send your Holy Spirit now to to minister to us. Lord, I pray that uh, that the words that that you would have us here, Lord, that they uh, that they take root, and Lord, that we don't go away from here uh, without without the conviction, Lord, that you bring the conviction that empowers us to step into repentance. And to turn from what we think and what this world thinks is uh, is so valuable. But Lord, just instill in us the your mind. Bring out those fruits in us, Lord. So that we may go and bring them out in, uh, <laughs> and put them on the display, Father. So, Lord, we give you all the honor and glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.